0: It is good to be back with you after three months of sabbatical. If you're new here um, in the last three months, you haven't seen me till last week when I did announcements. This is the first time I'm back to be able to preach since sabbatical. During sabbatical, I was able to disconnect from pastoral world kinds of things. I was able to rest and I was able to reflect on a lot of different things. I actually had lots and lots of unscripted conversations. Some people didn't even know I was a pastor Um, others knew but I wasn't in pastor kind of mode And, um, and it turns out that as I've had those conversations and as I've been reflecting with fellow pilgrims on the journey fellow skeptics and doubters, with people, lots of Christians, deconstructing their faith. Turns out that I'm now on a pathway of humble self-examination to see what has to stay the same in my faith and to see what has to get out of my faith, along with many others. getting outside of the world of being a pastor. I just heard people, so many people, share their dismay with the church in our culture, their disappointment with their particular churches, and their dissatisfaction with hardened theological categories. And so I talked with person after person after person, and they said things like this. This was a pastor who's left, I think he's now left the church. He said, I want to love my LGBTQ friends. And I couldn't do that as a pastor in my church. Another pastor said to me, I can't read parts of the Old Testament anymore without wanting to throw away my Bible. How can God have commanded his people to do racial cleansing? This was a lay leader in the church. Hasn't been to church for about a year and a half. He said, I've seen too much fighting in the church over the last few years. I don't think I can go back. I know I am now part of the problem because I'm being judgmental, but I just can't find grace for others or for myself. One person said, we thought Christianity was supposed to make us different, but Christians seem to be as political and divided and hateful as everyone else. Another one, I don't know what my faith is anymore. I think I've left Christianity, but I'm not quite sure. A 31-year-old said this, I don't want to give up on faith. I wish I could find a community that was authentic, vulnerable, safe, and doing real good in the world. And this one, last one, one person said to me, I just don't trust church-going Christians at this point. In my life. So the March 2022 um, cover story for the magazine Christianity Today, the cover story was You're Not Deconstructing. And the author of that cover story she listed several reasons for why Christians may be kind of rethinking and reevaluating their faith at this time. And she defined deconstruction as the struggle to correct or deepen naive faith. And then that fountain of wisdom, Wikipedia, they actually had a pretty good definition of deconstruction. Wikipedia defined it as a phenomenon within American evangelicalism in which Christians rethink their faith and jettison previously held beliefs, sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as Christian.
1: I was at a
0: conference in Grand Rapids, and I sat down in a dinner next to a business leader from Canada. And we talked a little bit. And he was so Canadian nice in the way he said it. But he said to me, he said, No offense intended, but how can you even identify as an evangelical Christian in America anymore? Cornerstone, this is not a, an insignificant phenomenon going on in the church right now you may not be at that point you may be at the front end of it maybe it's not even on your radar but this is an overwhelming phenomenon in the church right now but it's not a new phenomenon the 19th century Christian writer G.K. Chesterton wrote this he said every generation loses the gospel and every generation is charged with its rediscovery. So, during sabbatical, I've come, I came to a conclusion. I'm pretty convinced that deconstructing our Christian faith is an essential pathway of humility for nearly every one of us right now. Deconstructing our faith is an essential pathway of humility for nearly every Christian right now. And probably in your generation, maybe for every single one of you. It feels like we can't not do this. We need to to take the risk. We need to be courageous. We need to trust that the Holy Spirit will hold us as we go back and rethink some of the foundations of our faith. We've got to figure out what we're going to do with the broken church and why. We've got to figure out what we're going to live for and why. It's possible that some will walk away from the church and perhaps away from Christ. But right now it feels more dangerous to ignore this and to then perpetuate a, a Christian faith and a, a church life To perpetuate a Christian faith in a church life that really isn't good enough. It's not solid enough. It's not strong enough. It's not powerful enough. And if I'm really, really honest, I long for a a greater faith and a better church. And you know what? I long for a better me. So, this month we're going to look at three scriptures that... I've spent time in throughout these last three months. Um, I've tried to memorize all of them. I'm at various points with some of them. But I realized, these came to me at the very beginning of sabbatical. And I just kind of soaked in them over these last months. These are not scriptures to help you figure out what to deconstruct and what to reconstruct. These are scriptures to ground you and orient you so that you have the capacity the spiritual insight to do a good job with deconstructing and reconstructing. So I didn't spend time in these scriptures to learn, I spent time to soak in them and let them settle me down. And so, um, and, and then I found out I, when I started doing some of my kind of research of, of scriptures that I've, I've really studied a lot or journaled a lot about. All three of these scriptures seem to be go-to scriptures in times in my life when things are disrupted, when things are disoriented, when I'm not sure what's happening. And you don't have to have these scriptures, but I hope that you will develop a number of go-to scriptures that when things are falling apart, when you're just questioning yourself or questioning God, some go-to scriptures where you can settle and then reset so that you have strengthen the energy to do the work that God has for you to do. So the scripture this week to orient us in our disorientation is none other than Psalm 23. I hope Psalm 23 is extremely familiar to you. I don't want to teach you anything from Psalm 23 today. I just want to be in Psalm 23 with you today because this may be the primary scripture that God sends me back to time after time, probably more than any other scripture in my life, to to re-anchor where I am. So let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I will lack nothing or I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you do your kind of exegetical research of Psalm 23, it's it's amazing. This has been a psalm that has shaped Christians for, for centuries. And commentators, it's almost like they're in this competition when they soak in it and just settle in it to make this competition to express its unique glory for us. One commentator says, the world could spare many a large book better than to lose this little psalm. Another writes, this is the pearl of psalms whose soft and pure radiance delights every eye. Of this delightful song, it may be affirmed that its piety and its poetry are equal. Its sweetness and its spirituality are unsurpassed. Oh, that we may enter into the spirit of this psalm as we read it. And then we shall experience the days of heaven on earth. A couple others. Depth and strength underlie the simplicity of this psalm. As a song of trust, this psalm has no peer. It is impossible to estimate its effect upon man through the centuries. Grief, sadness, and doubt have been driven away by this strong affirmation of faith. Peace, contentment, and trust have been the blessings upon those who have come to share the psalmist's sublime confidence. While the language is simple and the meaning is clear, no one has been able to exhaust the message of the poem, or improve upon its quiet beauty. It's interesting that Psalm 23 is a favorite psalm in every church tradition, in Roman Catholicism, in Western Protestantism, in Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's even interesting how much this psalm is even appreciated and quoted by atheists, and agnostics. This commentator said it expresses more vividly than any other portion of scripture the individual's private experience of God's grace. Six verses. It's very, very you should memorize it. Okay? It should be in the top ten list of scriptures that you memorize in your life so that it is ready readily available to you whenever you need to draw near to God. It begins with these five words. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Those five words have always drawn me back to God. The Lord is my shepherd. i I grew up in a devout Christian family. I memorized Psalm 23, probably had it memorized by the time I was 10 years old. And for, I'm 66 years old, I came to Christ when I was six, so something like 60 years I have heard those five words and been drawn back to the presence of God. So each one of them is significant, the Lord. The Lord. Among all the other lords and rulers and posers in the universe, in Psalm 23, we're talking about the Lord, the one God, the creator of the universe, the Lord who has no equal. The Lord, the Lord. The word here is the word Yahweh, the name that God gave Moses by which he would be known by his people. The great I am, the one who always is and always will be. The Lord, this is the one who is my shepherd. And the Lord is. That changes everything. The Lord is. There is a God who created everything that we know. The Lord is. He exists. Over the years, I've heard countless people have said to me, I don't have enough faith to believe in God. You know what? I usually say this to them. Things like, I don't have enough faith to not believe in a God. When I look at the birth of my granddaughter, when I get to know the unique glory of your hearts, when I look at the heavens and see the stars, when I look at the grandeur of nature, I don't have enough faith to not believe in God. It would take far more faith for me to believe that all this happened by chance, that easy is a, a chance mistake or something that sure, sort of happened randomly. It would take more faith for me to not believe in God than to believe in the God who is. And once we settle on that, that God exists, that God is, it inescapably starts to shape our lives. Because if there is a God who truly exists, then my life is more than just me living for my goals and my my existence and my ends. Now I have a duty, now I have a responsibility to live a good life that honors the one who created me. If there's no God, that doesn't matter. But if there is a God, then it changes the way that we live. And in times of deconstruction, remembering that God exists is foundational for me. When I'm in one of my skeptic spirals, and I do skeptic spirals because I'm, I'm an inherent doubter, okay, I'm not a man of fate, I am a man of doubt. When I'm in one of those spirals, when I get back to God is, God exists, then I start to rebuild from there. And then, the Lord is my shepherd. Not only is there a God, a creator of the universe, who created all that is and created us in his image, but that God is personal. He is my shepherd. He is your shepherd. The God who created the universe knows you. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He sees you and he knows you. He is personal. And that makes you and every other human being on the face of the earth, no matter what political party they belong to, no matter what race, no matter their level of, of intellectual intelligence, every human being is of inestimable worth because they are known by, personally by the God who created them in his image. And then the last of the five words, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd defines the way that our God knows us. He's not just personal, but he knows us in a dependable way. As a good shepherd knows his sheep. The Lord, our our shepherd, he is faithful, he is reliable, he is powerful, he is knowing and caring He is a loving provider, guide, and protector in life. That's just the first five words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. All the rest of the psalm emerges from that foundation. Everything else builds from there. And and if there are five words to latch onto in times of disorientation and deconstruction and distress and struggles, if there are five words in the scripture, those are as good as any others that you will find. Then we go on to what that means. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will lack nothing. Said positively, because the Lord is our shepherd, we have everything that we need. We have everything that we need, in every part of our lives, in every season of our lives, in every relationship in our lives, in times of blessing, in times of of distress, in times of joy, in times of sorrow, in singleness, in marriage, in every stage, and every part of our lives. When the Lord is our shepherd, we have everything that we need. Now, you know that we're not going to have everything that we want right? I seldom have everything that I want. But I know that that my shepherd loves me so personally that he will always provide in his right time, in his right ways, he will provide everything that you need and I need. Peter remembers this in 2 Peter 1.3, when he says that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. When the Lord is our shepherd, we have everything that we need. And then the next four phrases just kind of start to to enter into some of the things because there's far more, into four ways that we can always count on the Lord as our shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. The Lord, your shepherd leads you to quietness. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 is, Be still and know that I am God. The Lord your shepherd wants to lead you to times of stillness, to calm your fears and your anxieties, to allow you to drink deeply of the waters of life. So the Lord your shepherd will continually call you to places of stillness. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Where do you go to recharge and re-energize? Where do you instinctually turn? Does Netflix really work? Does another party work? Does Instagram work? The Lord your shepherd will lead you to lie down in green pastures. He has for you. Life is full. He's created life to be rich and diverse. But he's not created life to be frantic and fragmented. The Lord, your shepherd, will lead you to lie down in green pastures. And it's in those green pastures where usually the best emerges out of you. That's when you hear the whispers of the Spirit. That's when you start to... Hear, find and hear your voice and your vision to make the world a better place. It's in those times of stillness when you are resting. Thirdly, he restores my soul. When our soul is fragmented and scattered, as it so often is, every time we go into the world, we get a little bit more fragmented. And every time we spend time in the presence of God, we get a little bit more integrated. The Lord our shepherd restores our soul with love and mercy and truth and wisdom and grace. And he's so dependable. When we draw near to him, he draws near to, to us. It, It just makes me wonder, why does it take me so long every time in my turmoil? Why does it take me so long to reach back out to my shepherd? And then fourthly, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, Christianity is supposed to change us. It's supposed to lead us to live good lives. Not just the good life, but good lives. And God will lead you to live a good life life and I actually love that he does this for his name's sake, because that tells me that he's personally invested in my living a good life it is personal for him that I will live a good life and do the transforming internal healing work that I need to do so that I can contribute to the common good so that we can all find that voice for a vision that God's given us for human flourishing Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when our girls were little, you know, they, um, both our daughters were born in Panama. And um, then we, we were born in Honduras. Then we moved to Panama. And in Panama, there are these like violent thunderstorms and monsoon rains seasonally. I love the monsoon rains. I love thunderstorms. But if you're a little girl in bed at night and there's a violent crack of, of thunder, it's natural for you to wake up, eyes bright, and to get really, really scared. And they slept in the same bedroom. So if one of them let out a bit of a scream, the other one would let out a scream, and they would run across the hallway and dive into Marla's and my bed right in between us. And mom and dad will put their arms around them and hold them, and their heartbeats would get slower, and their breathing would get slower, and they'd close their eyes and fall asleep. What intrigues me about that is, it wasn't that the storm ended that enabled them to fall asleep. It was because their mom and dad were with them. If you are not now in a storm, If you're not right at this particular moment walking through a valley of fear, a valley of the shadow of death, at some point you will. Because God uses storms to strengthen us. So storms are an inevitable part of the Christian life. There will be valleys of the shadow of death. Our son Daniel actually, um, (laughs) this dismays his mother, Um, he has a huge tattoo that goes from here to his knee. And it is a sailing ship in a storm. And what he has written at the bottom of that sailing ship is, smooth seas do not make skilled sailors. So God has purposes for storms. God has purposes for the valleys of the shadow of death. So that we can turn to him and know that he is with us. And then we don't have to be afraid. His rod gives us protection. His staff guides and nudges us so that we do not be afraid. When the Lord is our shepherd through the valleys and the storms, we can put down our fears. You all know that you are the two generations most represented at Cornerstone. You're the most anxious, fearful generations that, that we seem to have ever known. You don't have to be. If the Lord is your shepherd, when you go through the storms, when you go through the valleys of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil, for he is with us. One of the names for Jesus was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, in verses 5 and 6, the imagery shifts from the Lord as our shepherd to the Lord as our host, who prepares a table for us, in the presence of our enemies, he anoints our head with oil, our cup overflows. It should probably, it won't be a surprise to you when you, I mean, you may not have heard it before, but it shouldn't surprise you that um, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, Psalm 23 is frequently read as a psalm of, of preparation for the Lord's Supper, a song of preparation. For communion, because in the table of communion, our shepherd, our good shepherd Jesus, he prepares it for us, like he did on that first and the last supper, the night that he was betrayed, uh, the night before he went to the cross. He prepared a table for his disciples, and he prepares that table for us. We're told that he prepares the table in the presence of our enemies. I don't know who your particular enemies are, but in the Christian faith, we've recognized that there are three, three enemies of the soul that, that hound every single one of us. You may have personal enemies as well, but you also have the world, the flesh, and the devil as enemies of your soul. And our shepherd, our host, prepares a table for us to defy, to strengthen us in the presence of those enemies. And that's what communion is about as well. It's coming to the table of friendship and communion and commitment to Jesus to strengthen us in the presence of our enemies. So would you take the elements of communion now and hold them in your hand. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And he invited his original disciples, as he invites us now, to come to the table of communion and oneness with him. Let me pray for the bread. And then when you're ready to remember Jesus, then you'll be able to eat it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, dear shepherd, we come to you in whatever condition we are in today. No posturing. We're we're a mix. We have our fears and we have our faith. We have our certainties and we have our doubts. We have our sins and we have our virtues. We come to you in times of Reconstruction and reconstruction, times of orientation and disorientation. Thank you that you have given us the table of communion as a sacrament so that we are drawn back here to the table you've prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. In these moments of quiet right now, Lord Jesus, Would you meet each of us where we most need you right now? So let's be still before the Lord. Now, when you are ready, receive the bread of communion, remembering that Jesus said, this is my body given for you. the next phrase in the psalm is he anoints my head with oil he anoints my head with oil and so we're going to pause here as well where do you long for or need the anointing grace and goodness and gentleness and power and purpose of God right now in your life. Where do you need that? Go ahead and close your eyes again. And I'm going to give you a moment to just think of where you need and long for the anointing of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you that we know that your anointings are not, they're not frugal. They're not skimpy. We pray that you would anoint our heads, our souls, our lives, every part of our being in such a way that there are puddles of your blessing and power and purpose at our feet. Wherever we are right now in our life and faith, we don't want to go a day without your extravagant anointing. And it strikes me, Father, that perhaps you know better where we need anointing Than we do. So we lift our desires to you, and then we receive whatever it is that you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen. And then we come in the psalm to the next phrase My cup overflows. And so on that same night that he was betrayed, Jesus took one of the cups of the Passover meal and he poured it out and he distributed it to his disciples as he does for us today. And he says, this is my blood shed for you. This is the symbol of a new covenant. Jesus at communion did one of the greatest deconstructions and reconstructions ever in the human race. He says now your relationship with God it's not based on your performance it's not based on your knowledge, it's not based on your race it's not based on on anything in you, but it is based on the goodness and grace and grounded in the blood of Jesus for a new covenant. covenant. I think God wants to do something new in every one of us. And new things can be scary. They can be daunting. But would you receive the cup of communion now and tell Jesus that you are ready for whatever new thing that he wants to do in you? Jesus said, all of you partake of this in remembrance of me. And so we come to the last verse of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist wants us to know that God's goodness and mercy, it doesn't just kind of dance around after us, seeing whether maybe we'll find us surely 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 God's goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and if we miss the first word that surely God's goodness and mercy will follow us then then you need to know what that word follow where that comes from it is a hunting term in Hebrew It is a term for when the hunter tracks down relentlessly his prey and pounces upon it. God's goodness and mercy is pursuing you like a hunter, tracking you down relentlessly so that he can pounce on you and pour out goodness into you that then flows through you and mercy into you that then touches the lives of everybody around you surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever there is never going to be a moment when jesus will leave or forsake you you might not be aware of his presence you might be be you might be just just confused or trapped in sin, but there will never be a time when Jesus will leave or forsake you. He has promised us that. Absolutely. All right, let's back away just as we close. Do you see how important it is? What is the shepherd? What guides your life? Who your shepherd is, what your shepherd is, matters. Because there are a lot of false shepherds in the world. There are a lot of false guides. There are a lot of false strategies. There are a lot of false philosophies. There are false doctrines. And they will not add to your life, they will erode your life. So, because there are false shepherds and false guides, listen to this kind of antithesis to Psalm 23. Because the media, expectations, anxieties, and fears, and the ways of the world are my shepherd, I shall constantly want and strive and lack many things. I shall not rest. I will lie down only when I am sick, depleted, and exhausted. My soul is haunted and distressed. False shepherds lead me in fruitless paths of futility for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically through the valley of needs and tasks, I will never get them all met or all done. My failures and my anxieties are always with me. They prepare a table for me of unending deadlines in the presence of my enemies laughing, they anoint my head with stress and struggle, and they demand performance beyond the boundaries of my well-being, my inbox overflows. Surely, dissatisfaction and turmoil will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of discontent forever." Who will be your shepherd. If you will turn to the Lord your shepherd in every season of your life and especially in seasons of deconstruction you will find that you have everything you need. Jesus is the one who said I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly the very next verse in John 10:11, he says I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep so now what next week we're going to look at another psalm and then the week after that we'll look at one of the gospels can I leave you with two questions because I think one of the things we have to deconstruct in Christianity is you know people talking to you and then you not having a chance to respond So um, let me leave you with two questions. If you want, you can take a picture of the next slide. Um, These are questions for you, gentle questions for you to reflect on and maybe to talk about with a Christian friend or maybe a non Christian friend. And the questions I'd like to leave you with for today and this week are first, where are you at this point in deconstruction and reconstruction of your faith? You have to deconstruct before you can reconstruct where are you in that continuum and i'd like you to become aware of that so that we can learn about that together then the second question what do you long for most in psalm 23 and why what do you long for when you read those six verses what words what promises what phrases just they just just do something deep in your heart And I'd love for you to share that with somebody in your life this week so that they can get to know you and be on your side. Because the Lord is our shepherd, we have everything we need. And as an echo of a song that we just sang, Thomas Akempis famously said this, He who has Christ is rich and has enough. Amen.